This is They Create Worlds, Episode 78, Invading Taito, Part 2. Man the battle station! Prepare the launchers! Prepare the lasers! The aliens are coming! They're gonna shoot us all! Prepare to shoot back! Alex, man the battle station! What's our energy status? All I have in front of me is a Chromebook. Chromebook is showing that it is fully charged on the battery. Battery is full. So, yes, I think our energy is full. Excellent! We may now continue with... They create worlds. Taito, part two. Good, good. Let's do that. Yes. You must be Jeffrey, and I must be your co-host, Alex. That's right. And today we're going into the hard and tribulation that is Taito during the glory time of Invader Houses. But we already talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, we talked about that kind of thing a little bit in our Japanese Game Centers episodes. We won't reinvent the wheel here and spend too much time on Space Invaders, but I do think it's fair to say that Space Invaders dominated the story of Taito for really much of the rest of its existence, as we'll see. I don't think it ever quite escaped the shadow of Space Invaders, but on the other hand, it was also Space Invaders that allowed it to remain such a large company for the uh, ensuing decades. So we left off last time with uh, Mr. Nishikado getting ready to do this whole Space Invaders thing. We've talked before how Breakout and the Breakout craze in Japan led directly to Space Invaders. We don't really need to go into the development of the game again, other than to just remind Space Invaders seems tame now because, of course, there's been so many other games that have come after it that have continued to up the intensity straight up through those uh, bullet hell shooters that uh, the Japanese gamers seem to like so much. So in comparison even to a game like Galaxian a year later, Space Invaders seems somewhat tame. But we have to recall, in the 1970s arcade, you had driving games where the primary goal, rather than racing against an opponent, was seeing how many laps you could complete or how many points you could score within a time limit. You had shooting gallery games where you had arrays of targets on the screen, but they did not shoot back. Again, all you were doing was trying to score as many points as you could. And then you had competitive games, whether that be something like Pong, balls going back and forth, or something with more action in it, like a tank or a gunfight, where two players are shooting at each other. But again, you're playing to a certain point level, first to however many points wins, and that's the game. It's playing against time, it's playing to a score, or it's racking up as many points as you can, but no matter which way you're doing it, it's forgotten the moment your game's over. It's like, oh great, I accumulated that score, but those scores weren't saved, and okay, I'm shooting at things, but except for the occasional game where you're playing one-on-one with a buddy... Those things aren't shooting back at you. It's just, okay, the screen's full of stuff moving across the uh, the play field. I'll 
try to shoot what I can. Very similar to the types of gun games that had been in arcades all the way back to the 1890s, as we discussed in one of our episodes. It's really just gallery shooters where you have things in the distance you're shooting at, but there's no real interaction apart from that. Exactly. And then you get Space Invaders. And not only does Space Invaders include computer-controlled enemies that actually fire back at you, that put you in peril, but it keeps track of the high score on the machine. Now, is this the first game in the arcade to ever keep track of the high score per system start? As far as I know, yes. As far as I know. Seawolf, which we've talked about before, which was a shooting gallery game, kind of had a a high score that displayed as kind of an aspirational goal as a score to beat if you were playing the game. But to my knowledge, it was a score set by the machine and it wasn't that, you know, every time a player set a new high score on that machine, that score was saved and you could see that score for forever and ever. It, It wasn't like that. As far as I know, Space Invaders was the very first game to display the high score for all time and give you a target to shoot for. Now, it didn't have a table yet. Space Invaders does not have a high score table. But always on the screen, at the very top of the screen, in between player one score on the left and player two score on the right, there is a third score called high score. And that score is saved. The highest score ever recorded on that machine remains the score on that machine. It may be uh, back in the day, if you unplugged it, it would reset. I'm not sure that there was really much in the way of necessarily RAM in there that was... It probably did, even up into the late 90s and stuff. Most machines would reset their scores when you unplugged them. Exactly, because it's it's volatile memory. It's not non-volatile memory. But they usually had like pre-programmed aspirational scores by the programmers right. in there. So you try to beat those and then get your initials in there or whatever. And, of course, there was very famously a whole episode of Seinfeld that was based on on that exact premise where I never watched Seinfeld. I don't know if it was Jerry or one of the other characters that had the high score on the machine, but they were frantically trying to move the cabinet and save the cabinet without losing power to it so that the score wouldn't be erased. And that led to uh, them dodging traffic and playing Frogger in real life, essentially. Right. So, you know, it's not that the score necessarily persists forever and ever, but your score could be that score on that high score. And it was something that people targeted to overcome. And I imagine with the Japanese culture of being Mm anti-confrontational, that this would dive into the competitive spirit of people because I'm not doing a direct competition with someone. This is some sort of nameless score here. Right. And on this machine, I want to try to get my score to be there so I can have personal good feelings. Exactly. It changed the arcade. I mean, it just, the arcade before Space Invaders was completely different than the arcade after Space Invaders. I mean, there wasn't score chasing before. You would play your friends for points. I mean, you know, in pinball, you would play your friends for points. You'd try to to beat scores and whatnot. But, I mean, in video games, there was no score chasing. It's hard to imagine the arcade without score chasing. And, you know, wouldn't you know, arcades weren't as popular before score chasing. (laughs) That was the entire kind of framework of how arcades worked in the golden age. Because at that point, most games were still not uh, narrative driven most games were 
only multiplayer in very limited senses and many games remain single screen. There weren't very many scrolling games. So the thing that defined the so-called Golden Age Arcade, the period from about 1979 to 1982, give or take a year, was score chasing. And that emerges out of whole cloth in Space Invaders. As I said, other games were refined at Starfire and Asteroids uh, the very next year at a high score table. And uh, Starfire specifically adds the ability to put your initials next to your score. So you need those couple of refinements to really cement it. But it, it starts with Space Invaders. Of course, you know, the enemy shooting back at you. The idea that the game is playing against you. Before, you had the clock playing against you, or you had another human playing against you. Now, the game is playing against you. I mean, it, it seems so basic. I mean, that's how every game is today. But, I mean, that concept just wasn't there. And this is way before things like Donkey Kong and other things you might be thinking about mm-hmm. where in the arcade, the game plays against you. To this point, you either had a, a human-controlled adversary or a time-based adversary. Mm-hmm. And think about it, the most advanced game to that point before Space Invaders was Breakout. And that was insanely popular because of sort of the bouncing mechanic aspect of it. It was a bit more interactive by doing that. Mm-hmm. And then by having with Space Invaders, having them shoot back, having Mothership fly by, it mm-hmm. just added such a different level that's sort of a change, I would say, on par with black and white going to color or sound being added to black and white movies back in the day? Really? Absolutely. I mean, it is just as big. And Taito thought it would be a failure. It's too hard, they said. (laughs) So, anyone who invents a time machine, I want you to go back to the Taito creator (laughs) and take a bullet hell game from today (laughs) and slap that in front of them and say, people pay big money to play this and compare this to that. But you can see the logic, okay? And and here's why. I mean, it sounds silly today, but when you put a hundred yen piece or a quarter into a video game, pre-Space Invaders, for the most part, you had a rough idea about how much time you were going to get in the game. No matter how bad you might be at the game, if it's a beat-the-clock kind of game, you know that you will at least last that first minute or minute and a half or two minutes or whatever the clock is set to, you know, before time runs out. If you're a better player, your time will be extended and you'll play for longer. But you know you're getting like a minute of gameplay or something like that. If you're playing a match against a friend, you know that you will be playing however long it takes to get one of you to the winning score. So you know you're getting a certain amount of entertainment value for that quarter. When you have a game like Space Invaders, where the enemy shoots back at you, your quarter, 100 yen piece, the very first time you play that game, may buy you five seconds. You could be really, really silly and do a bullet chaser where I'm trying to get my spaceship as quickly under that bullet as possible. Mm -hmm. It's a power-up, obviously. Oh, no. Now, I mean, with Space Invaders, you get three lives. So will that game really last five seconds for one quarter? I mean, not quite. But still, you could run through those three players that you have within 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And that is a far lower 
playtime than one would be used to on a video game. Now, obviously, we had pinball, and pinball operates under those same basic mechanics where you get three balls or five balls or whatever, and when you lose your balls, you're done. So a game of pinball can be over in a very quick period of time as well. It's not like the idea that a game only buys you a certain amount of time was was new at this point, but it was kind of new to video games. And I think when they say too hard, and this is just me speculating, but I think when they say too hard, they saw a scenario where a player loses all of his lives within just a few seconds because they're not used to having to react in this way, get really upset that their quarter or their 100 yen piece is gone in moments and walks away in disgust never to return. And so, I mean, when you think of it that way, you can see where they're coming from. They're wrong. What they didn't anticipate is the competitive spirit that as long as the game feels fair, as long as it feels like the game has mechanics that are knowable and counterable as you improve your skill, as long as the game feels fair, people will come back because they know that if they keep at it, they will eventually be able to play the game for a long time on a single 100 yen piece. So it's an investment. And I don't think probably these Taito marketing executives were thinking of a game transaction in terms of an investment in that sense. It's quite possible. So Taito has come out with Space Invaders. We've talked about it in the past where there's invader houses in Japan. It's something that becomes a worldwide phenomenon by and large. It, it really does. You know, it, at the uh, coin show that they were showing it off, it was completely overshadowed by another Taito game called Blue Shark, which was a traditional shooting gallery kind of game. It had a gun controller that was kind of harpoon-like and you're shooting at stuff underwater. And that just looked great. And that's the one that all the distributors in Japan thought was going to be the hit too, just because that's something they're familiar with, something they know is a moneymaker. But once it gets out, it does not take long for it to completely take over in Japan. And yes, you do get invader houses. We talked about this a little bit. You had gun corners. You had games in bowling alleys. You had games on department store rooftops. You had games in supermarkets, shopping malls. You had game centers that were more Vegas-like and were devoted to metal games. After Breakout, you had snack bars, tea houses, maybe even some lounges starting to do uh, tabletop games, starting to have games in. So you had that kind of spread. The thing that Space Invaders really did above all else is it was kind of the missing link. I'm not saying I'm sure there were probably game centers that had more than just metal games before Space Invaders came along. I mean, I, I don't know the entire progression of Japanese arcades well enough to say anything there with authority, but it was the missing link. Once you had Space Invaders, game centers needed to have this game. And not just game centers, but small shops that may be involved in other areas of trade. There are stories of like produce shops, just little produce shops, giving up the produce business so that they can install five or six Space Invaders cabinets in their little uh, shop area and making money on that instead because it was such a huge moneymaker. Some of that may be apocryphal, but it's definitely true that you had the birth of the Invader House, which was a smaller location, something that was not 
a big gun corner or game center or not something that was attached to a bowling alley or something, but just like a little space that doesn't have many cabinets, but has a ton of space invader cabinets lined up side by side. And the term invader house remained one of the terms used for game centers, particularly smaller game centers for years after space invaders was no longer a thing because it was that much of an impact on the psyche of the country. I mean, it was huge. They sold well north of 100,000 cabinets in just Japan alone. And remember, Japan's a tiny place. And also remember, as we went over in our episode, they couldn't keep up with the demand. No. And there was a lot of cloning. There was a lot of outright piracy. And there was sub-licensing. They authorized, and we talked about this in kind of our Birth of Japanese Arcade Companies episode, they authorized a half dozen or so companies to actually make Space Invaders legally. Companies like Irem and SNK that would eventually become important players in the Japanese arcade industry got their start. May not have been the very first thing they did. In fact, they were most of them were in breakout already, but really got established is what I, I mean by that, by making Space Invaders legally. And many more companies got established by making Space Invaders not so legally. <laughs> and, well, and we shouldn't say legal or illegal because we have to remember that at this point, there is really no copyright protection in Japan at all for computer programs, for games. So, I mean, we talk about it in terms of piracy, and, and it was piracy because they weren't authorized, but it wasn't illegal either. In fact, Space Invaders is the reason that you finally get copyright law in Japan, because Taito goes after these companies that are making it in an authorized fashion. And it takes a long time because they have to win their way through the courts and multiple appeals and all of that. But in 1982, the Japanese Supreme Court finally recognizes that, yes, a video game, a computer game, is something that can be copyrighted and therefore protected under Japanese copyright law. And it was Space Invaders that was responsible for that. And Taito. And Taito, right. It was Taito protecting Space Invaders that was responsible for that. Of course, the other story about Space Invaders that is incredibly pervasive is this idea that there was a shortage of 100 yen coins in the country. So severe that the Japanese meant actually increased production of 100 yen coins. This is a very old rumor. I mean, it goes back, you know, even as early as 1979 or so, American newspapers are reporting on the phenomenon of the Space Invaders game in Japan and are reporting this as fact, that there was a, a shortage of coins. Now, unfortunately, that was largely apocryphal. Yes and no. It doesn't look like there was actually an increase in production at that time, because these are things that governments keep statistics on, and there are people who have gone back and looked. There was not an increase in production caused by some kind of shortage of coins. That did not happen. What did happen, and, and where this comes from, I do believe, and I've got this from both Ed Miller and Paul Moriarty independently, the president and general manager, respectively, of Taito America during this time period. What did happen is that the machines were taking in so many coins, and it took so long to empty those machines of their coins, process those coins, and get those coins back into circulation, that there were currency difficulties. I mean, was it a nationwide shortage? Maybe not. Maybe it was only localized. But the fact is, the Japanese diet did negotiate with Taito and work with Taito to get 
the coins that they were collecting out of the machines. Because, of course, I remember that in Japan, companies like Taito were not just manufacturers. They were also operators. So Taito was collecting coins on Space Invaders. Uh, they negotiated with Taito to get that turned around faster, to get coins from machine to counting house to bank to street at a faster rate. So that's where the story originates from. There is truth to it. It's just not 100% true. It's, it's too good a story to be true in its entirety. All right. So we've had Space Invaders. They took everything by storm. So Taito is like every other company. This is their high point, and they're going to have some sort of monstrous fall now, right? Well, no. I mean, you know, Taito never has a monstrous fall. I would call Taito's fall as much as it is a fall because they remained uh, overall a profitable company. I would call it gradual. They never hit the heights of Space Invaders again, and that is a problem for them. On the other hand, hitting that height allows them to lay the groundwork for keeping the company going uh, in the future. I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that it made a lot of money. I mean, obviously, it made them a lot of money in the short term. They may have even surpassed Sega very briefly, I'm not positive, to be the number one Japanese video game company by revenue. If they did, it was only for a year or so. It, it was not lasting. But the big thing is, is it allowed them to open a lot of arcades. I mean, a lot of arcades. Of course, they're selling this game to other people, too. It's not like every one of those 100,000-plus Space Invaders in Japan is only in a Taito-run arcade. They're everywhere. Like we said, even in places that didn't have a single game on their premises, now they were entirely devoted to the game on the premises. I mean, that happened. But it allowed Taito to really open a lot of arcades and allowed them to kind of become the leader. I don't know... Because I don't have a lot of good stats. I don't know if they had the most, if they ended up beating Sega uh, in terms of number of arcades. But I do know that certainly when analysts were looking at the big three companies, Sega, Taito, Namco, as the decade went on, there was kind of this stereotype amongst the trade publications and whatnot that Sega, which remained the number one company, if it lost that position for a minute, it got it back. Sega was the company that was really pushing the cutting edge the most and having the most success in the pure sale of arcade games. Taito, which was the number two company, was experiencing a lot of its success because it was just operating so many games in all of the game centers, this groundswell of game centers that they were able to open because of the success of Space Invaders. And that Namco really derived a lot of its success from the fact that they got on the Famicom very early. They were spoken of in the trade press more in terms of what they were accomplishing with Famicom software than in terms of arcade software. I'm talking about the 1980s specifically. We're not talking about the days of Tekken and Ridge Racer and Time Crisis. We're talking about the mid-1980s, post-Pac-Man as well, of course, obviously. So even if they didn't end up operating the most game centers... It certainly would have been close, and it was certainly something that defined the identity of the company in Japan throughout the 1980s and early 90s, and that, that is because of Space Invaders. The other thing that Space Invaders let them do is it let them become truly embedded in the U.S. market. They opened a factory in 1979 in the U.S. market. Now, Space Invaders was licensed through Midway, as all their previous games had been, but because of the worldwide success of Space Invaders, and we're talking upwards of 300,000 cabinets sold all around the world when you put it all together. U.S. was somewhere between 60 and 70,000. 
Uh, Japan was north of 100,000. How far north? I'm not sure. It may have been even close to 200,000, but it was a lot. And then Europe and the rest of the world makes up the, the rest of that total to get you to 300,000. It was a big deal everywhere. Biggest in Japan, though. I mean, think about it. The United States is a, is a country that is many times the size in not just population, but most importantly in area to Japan. And so in order to saturate the entire U.S. market, you have to have a lot of product in the market just because you have to have product close to the person in South Dakota as well as close to the person in Southern California as well as close to the person in Maine. Japan is small, and the arcade environment, uh, the game center environment, is largely centered in its two largest cities, Tokyo and Osaka. There's obviously games elsewhere, too, but that's kind of the main concentrations. You have population density. So to saturate that market, you don't necessarily need as much product on location just because you can reach more people per cabinet in Japan because of the the, uh, population density in the small land area. But there were more Space Invaders cabinets in Japan. And Space Invaders was a phenomenon like the U.S. arcade market had never seen. I mean, there were a couple of pinball games that sold in the fifty to 80,000 range at the very beginning of the pinball boom in the early 1930s. But outside of those couple of pinball machines at the very beginning, 60,000 in sales was something that the U.S. market had never seen. I mean, it was huge. I mean, the game was massively successful in the United States. But there were still more cabinets sold in Japan, in just little old Japan, than in the United States. I mean, think about how much of a phenomenon that game had to be in Japan, that you had 100,000 plus machines on location in such a small and densely populated country. Yep. And they get all the money. Exactly. But uh, because of that worldwide success, they are able to open a U.S. factory in 1979. They are the only Japanese company during the Golden Age that, rather than licensing to Americans, has a factory in the United States, in the Chicago area, cranking out product. Now, some of you might say, but wait, what about Sega? And it's like, ah, but remember, if you've been paying attention in our past episodes, Sega is actually an American company in this time period. So even though Sega is doing a lot in Japan, they don't count as a Japanese company for the purposes of what I'm saying. And feel free to consult the History of Sega episodes, and I suggest getting some thumbtacks and yarn. (laughs) Yes, very complicated. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, Taito is hugely successful. They cement a place in uh, the Japanese industry that they'll never lose, but they never quite manage to follow it up. And it starts from the very beginning. So, you know, Space Invaders, big hit. Logical thing to do is a sequel. And the logical thing to do with the sequel is to do it in color because Space Invaders is a black and white game. In the United States, mylar sheets, colored mylar sheets are used on the plastic in front of the monitor to create bands of color. So it's it's a colorful game for that reason. You've got green at the bottom where the ship is. You have the invaders in white and then the, the saucer that comes across the top is red. But there's no color monitor. There's no RGB in there. It's all these, uh, these mylar, colored mylar sheets providing that color. In Japan, they start doing the same thing. I don't think they started doing it from the very beginning, but they did release it in cabinets that had these, these same sheets. 
So you had color, but it wasn't real color. So the logical thing is, well, let's do it all over again in color. And so they did. They did Space Invaders Part 2. That's what they called it. It's not like it was a sequel in a story sense, but they did call it Part 2. The very next year, Anishikado designed it again. And this time, you had aliens in color. Some of them were blue. Some of them were orange. It had a color monitor. It's, it's all great. It's just one problem. At this point, Namco has created a little game called Galaxian. Space Invaders Part 2 has the same kind of blocky aliens that the first game had. I mean, they look good for the time, but they're blocky and not a lot of detail. And the color version, each of those uh, rows, uh, they were single color. You didn't have multiple colors on a single sprite. And, of course, Space Invaders Part 2 had the same basic gameplay as Part 1. Block of enemies slowly advancing down the screen. But now you have Galaxian. It has multicolored sprites, and they're not blocky. They have nice uh, insect shapes, multicolored. There's a scrolling star field, multicolored, in the background to give kind of the sense of speed and moving through space. And instead of blocks of enemies, you have enemies dive-bombing you. It's the next evolution of the Space Invaders concept. But it doesn't come from Taito. And what all Taito did was basically release the exact same game, but now it's in color. and more primitive color even than what Galaxian has. So already, Taito has lost the initiative. Right there, one year later from when Space Invaders came out, completely lost the initiative. They never have another hit like Space Invaders. I mean, nobody, with the possible exception of Namco with Pac-Man, has as big a hit as Space Invaders. So, so to say that, it's unfair to characterize it that way, but what I should say is they never had a hit with anywhere near the same magnitude or presence as Space Invaders. When you think of the other games that did very well during the Golden Age, it's Galaxian, Galaga, Pac-Man from Namco. It's Ms. Pac-Man from Midway. It's Donkey Kong from Nintendo. It's Zaxxon from Sega. There really isn't another game from Taito that makes the same impact. Now, they're still reaping all the rewards from all that they've spawned, because remember, now they're a huge operator. So as the game centers continue to grow in popularity in Japan, they're not an operator in the United States, they're reaping the benefits and making lots of money off of all of this. And and they're still doing fine. I mean, they do not enter into a decline. And, uh, you know, they remain the number two company and with significant revenue. But they never quite build on that. And... You know, they're outclassed even just a year later, and I think that that kind of informs a lot of their story going forward there. They have a few periods where they have some mighty successes, which we'll be going into, but it always feels like after Space Invaders, they're always one step behind everyone else. And they're kind of relying on their legacy with Space Invaders and the way Space Invaders allowed them to expand to carry them forward. That's why, you know, Space Invaders was their success, but it was also... How do you follow up on having a phenomenon like that, <laughs> right? I think it's something akin to something that it happens with sports heroes and particularly Olympians, where you're very young, you achieve this pinnacle of success, and that pretty much defines the rest of your life, but you still have all of this life ahead of you. And many of them find it very difficult to continue on and find true meaning because they don't have that thing that they have strived to do 
for so many years in their life and then finding that new purpose, that new goal, that new thing to strive for. I think for a lot of these companies that get these kind of successes, they fall victim to the same thing. A lot of the time, like I alluded to, is they have these really great pinnacles of success, but then because they don't have anything to shoot for anymore, Mm -hmm. they crash and burn and they fail. With Taito, it seems like they're able to reach that point of success and they're starting that gradual decline. But from what I understand about Taito is they sort of reach an eventual plateau level where they don't have anything to really strive for. So they don't seem to be able to do better, but they are still good enough and still innovative enough that they are still viable as a company. Oh, absolutely. Always very viable and very successful. I mean, they were, remain throughout the 80s and early 90s and beyond the number two company to Sega. I mean, we don't want to fall into a trap of saying that <laughs> that they're failures after Space Invaders, like, like you say. But yeah, I, I think what you're saying is very apt. A few things happen uh, during this period. So they open their factory in the United States, and there gets to be some, some difficulty. Mike Kogan, we talked about Mike Kogan. He's the founder of Taito. Mike Kogan was a great big bear of a man. He was like over six feet tall. He was 300 plus pounds. He loved vodka and caviar, the finer things in life. He was a larger than life figure. And a figure who I think it could be very difficult to be in the, in the shadow of sometimes. Now, Taito was a Japanese company. I mean, it's owned by a Russian, but it's in Japan, and most of the employees are Japanese. It is a Japanese company. So he did not exercise complete draconian authority over the company. It was run by a consensus style of management. It wasn't even a a Yamauchi at Nintendo situation where, yeah, they're Japanese, but Yamauchi, I mean, he's the one in charge. You know, I talked to Ed Miller about this because he was there throughout this period and knew the Japanese company very well since he had been at the Japanese company before becoming the the head of the new Taito America. And it was still consensus style management. There were three people at the top of the company, Michael Kogan and uh, uh, Mr. Nakatani, who was... Kogan's right-hand man uh, from very far back. He was an ex-newspaper man. He was a retired newspaper man. And he and Kogan attended the same karate dojo and got to know each other. Nakatani joined Taito at, at the foundation, 1953. I mean, he was there from the beginning and was kind of Kogan's right-hand man. The name of the third guy, I forget. It's, it's not a name that even if I had the name, it would just be a name. I have no background on him. But there was an executive committee of three people that kind of ran the company together. But Kogan was still a larger-than-life figure, and a lot of what the company truly was was all tied up in him. In the 80s, he starts having health problems in the early 80s because he's 300 pounds and likes the finer things in life, like alcohol and fatty foods, and he starts having heart problems. He has heart attacks. He starts slowing down, which uh, couldn't have helped things. He has a son, Abba. We talked about him very briefly in the previous episode. His son is not being brought along to replace him. There's really no succession plan at the company. You know, this is Ed Miller talked a lot about this. 
Mike Kogan was the kind of person that, that felt like he was going to go on forever. Nobody does, but you know the type that just they seem indefatigable and they never slow down and they're always going, going, going and somehow make it all work. And of course, nobody lasts forever. But, you know, if anyone was going to last forever, it felt like Mike Kogan could be the one. And he never really put a succession plan in place. His son was in Brazil. Taito actually had a Brazilian subsidiary, which was very unusual for the time, that actually even created some games of their own. They were kind of rebranded versions of other people's games. They, like, knocked off pinball games from Williams and other companies and and put out their own versions of them. But they were in the Brazilian market, and ABBA was in the Brazilian market. That's a tough market. It's a cutthroat market. It's a market with a lot of counterfeiting. It's not an easy market to be established in. South America today is still very much marred by counterfeiting uh, when it comes to trying to establish business there. It really wasn't an environment where he could acquire the experience and the, and the skills he needed to kind of take over the whole company someday. Ed Miller had a somewhat complicated relationship with Mike Kogan. I don't want to get fully into that. Uh, we talked about that at, at length in our interview, but I do think some of that is is very private, and I don't really want to go into that at length. But there was a nearly father-son kind of relationship uh, between them, at least in, in Miller's eyes. And that may have created some difficulties amongst various power brokers in the company that ultimately led Kogan to start distancing himself from Ed Miller and not keeping him as much in the loop as to what was going on. I don't know the full details there, and I, I don't want to try to explore that because a lot of that is very personal. It, it's a company that was really, you know, in this time period, it was really built a lot on personal relationships, as a lot of the early coin-op companies were. So Ed Miller is feeling like he's not being appreciated as much, and he ends up leaving the company in 1981. He's headhunted by the investors in Allied Leisure, which has gone bankrupt and there's new investors that are looking to try to revive the company and he's headhunted to lead the new company which renames itself Centuri. So he's he's gone. Abba Kogan's down in Brazil and uh, Mike Kogan's not doing so well and is starting to pull back. Nakatani's kind of holding things down in Japan. Uh, but there's kind of a, a period of leadership crisis I think it's fair to say at Taito is the 80s progress and how much of that played a role in them losing their vitality, I'm not sure, but it it certainly had to play some role. So with Ed Miller out of the picture, they bring in a coin-op veteran. Ed Miller was a relatively young guy and had not had any experience in the coin-op business before Taito. Uh, To replace him, they bring in an older guy with lots of experience in the business uh, by the name of Jack Mattel, M-I-T-T-E-L. Uh, He actually just died. I never interviewed him, but he actually just died a couple of years ago uh, in his 80s. Jack Mattel had started operating like in the late 40s, I think. I mean, he went way back in the industry and then he got onto the manufacturing side. He was with Williams in sales for a number of years. So he understood the industry very well. And so they decided to go for this veteran leadership uh, to replace Ed Miller. It didn't work out very well. Jack Mattel was experienced. He knew the business, and he knew what he felt had to be done 
to grow the Taito business in the United States. That's not usually what Japanese companies are looking for in an American executive. They're looking for someone who is capable and who knows the business well and who can interact with other people in the business, but they're not generally, and there are obviously exceptions, I'm generalizing here, but they're not looking for somebody to be the leader. They're looking for someone who follows orders. <laughs> and so there was a lot of tension. You know, I got this from Paul Moriarty. Paul Moriarty stayed on as general manager, even after uh, his friend Ed Miller left the company. So Paul Moriarty's still there, and I've talked to him. Uh, he said there was a lot of tension between Jack and management uh, with Kogan and Nakatani and all those people back in Japan because he had the way he knew he wanted to do things. And it was counter to what the Japanese wanted to do. He was very blunt. Japanese business practices are very non-confrontational and very subtle. Yes doesn't mean yes. Yes just means I hear what you're saying, and I don't want to have any more discussion on this, so I may not want to do what you're saying at all, but I'm going to say yes now so that this conversation is over. Just for example, I mean, I'm no, and I'm no expert on, on Japanese uh, business practices, but I mean, that's, that's something I know is, is true. Yes doesn't always mean yes. Sometimes yes means no. But it's, it's all about this kind of very subtle, very careful, very delicate, very face-saving manner of negotiating. Well, Jack Mattel was just blunt. If he thought something was stupid, he just said it was stupid. If he said it was better to do it this way, then if he thought it was better to do it this way, then he said it's better to do it this way. That's just not a style that works very well uh, with the Japanese just because of different cultural sensibilities. So you had a lot of management craziness going on during the Golden Age, and that may have played some role. But uh, Jack Mattel did know what he was doing. And, and one good thing that he did is he did start development in the United States. He actually got a small development group together at Taito America, to make some games. They had one kind of hit that they got out of that, and uh, that was the game Kicks. Uh, I believe you're familiar with Kicks. I am familiar with Kicks. It is one of my favorite games I remember playing over at one of my uncles. It is the game where you are on the outside of a box, and there is the kick. It is evil. It is some sort of virus. We don't know what it is. But the goal is, is to section off enough area so that some percentage of the area is claimed for you, the good guy, and the kicks is locked away in this lesser percentage. Mm -hmm. You get more points for doing crazy things like large washes of area. Mm -hmm. So a popular yet brazen move is to start off going, let's just divide the play field in half. <laughs> right. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Most of the time, you die. <laughs> Absolutely. The word unique gets thrown around a lot more than it probably really should be. And I'm sure we've probably used it more often, even in our podcast, than we probably should. But if there is a game that can truly be considered unique, that really just burst out of nowhere, that didn't really have ties to any games in the past or any games in the future. It is Kicks. It's a completely different kind of game. And it came out of the American branch. Mattel uh, hired a guy named Randy Pfeiffer, who had been a designer at Williams, Pinball, I believe. And uh, 
tasked him with, you know, coming up with some games. Uh, they had some other creative people as well. Keith Egging, who actually uh, predated this, that had been brought in to help Taito understand uh, what kind of games and game concepts appeal in the American market. And Dave Poole, and they had a few others. But uh, Randy Pfeiffer was brought in to do games. And his wife, Sandy, was also a programmer. And so she would, would assist him. They decided they wanted something nonviolent. This is the age of Space Invaders and Galaxian, and this is an impulse that is, uh, you know, grabbed a few different designers. I mean, that's part of the impulse behind Pac-Man as well. It's like, okay, we've got all of these action-heavy, testosterone-driven games that appeal to men, to teenagers, and now if we want to make the arcades grow even more, become even more inclusive, is there some nonviolent gameplay that we can do that's interesting that will attract a different set of players than is attracted to the whole Space Invaders thing? Not that the violent games are wrong, but it's just that's one segment of the market. How do we maybe try to capture a different segment of the market? They wanted to do something nonviolent, and then Randy was actually had become very obsessed with this art program on the IBM PC. Brand new PC is, is just becoming a thing that had a spinning something i mean essentially the kicks i mean they didn't call it a kicks that's that's a name that was made up basically because randy and sandy were very big scrabble players and kicks that combination of letters the q the i and the x that's a super duper not that it's a real word but if it were a real world word it would be a super duper high scoring three letter word in scrabble and so that's that's why they chose it. That's the secret behind the name Kicks. The spinning, rotating thing that would change colors uh, while it spun. It was an art, not an art program as in you use it to draw, but an art program as in here's a piece of computer art, this thing that spins and change colors and everything. That was the Kicks. So they, they, they knew they wanted something nonviolent and they knew they wanted to feature this spinny, color changey thing. And then from there, they discovered, they figured out, well, we can have this thing. Uh, it's coming from an art program. We can have this thing draw lines. And okay, if we're drawing lines, what are we doing? We're taking control of the screen. Okay, so now we have an objective that's nonviolent, but still challenging. And you get Kicks. Kicks is the most successful game that Taito America does, specifically the American branch. It may have done as many as 10,000 units. Uh, when Keith Egging talked to Keith Smith, uh, all in color for a quarter, you know, he said he remembered 10,000 units. Maybe it did a little less. Certainly probably didn't do any more, but it was the biggest hit they had. But again, it kind of showed that even when the company was doing something interesting, they were just a little bit out of step. It could have been so much bigger. I mean, when it first hit the arcade, it was massively, massively popular because it was something no one had ever seen before and was also challenging and interesting. But this was the era of Pac-Man. I don't just mean that the game was overshadowed by Pac-Man. All games were overshadowed by Pac-Man. That's not the problem. Part of what made Pac-Man so desirable was that the game had patterns. The ghosts moved in specific patterns, and it was possible to play a perfect maze of Pac-Man just by memorizing the patterns of the ghosts and knowing what they would do at any given time. This was basically the birth of the whole strategy guide industry, because this was the first time kind of, I mean, there had been some things on how to win at Space Invaders or whatever, but this was, this was the first time where once you cracked the code, you could know everything about how to play the game 
and become a better player, not just by improving your hand-eye coordination, but by actually memorizing these patterns and knowing something about the game. So there were lots of books written about how to win Pac-Man. And so the idea of chasing high scores and better high scores by knowing patterns was something that was becoming very much in vogue in this time period. And Kix was completely random, which is really a better game. Personally speaking, I'm not saying the Kix overall was better than Pac-Man, but just if you have a game that's predictable and you have a game that's completely random, generally speaking, in this context, the completely random game is a better way to do the gameplay. And indeed, Ms. Pac-Man, one of the things that the creators of that did was they eliminated the patterns in the ghosts. And that was well received in 1982, but this is 1981 and we're in Pac-Man fever. And as soon as players realized that there were no patterns to memorize, there was no way to get better at the game by learning more about the game, that the pattern of everything is random every time, so part of it's always going to be luck, interest just died almost overnight. Which is really a shame because the game, there's been various versions of it that have come out on cell phones under different names and whatnot, and it's still a lot of fun to play. Oh, yeah. Now, history remembers it very fondly. I mean, you can still find it in all sorts of versions out there on the net and whatever. And it's been a sub game of other games. The game Bully by uh, Rockstar Games has essentially a Kicks minigame in it. No, history looks on Kicks very fondly because it's a very interesting game. Commercially, it was kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time, so to speak. To take a movie analogy, it's sort of the cult classic version of video games. Sure, absolutely. I, calling it a cult classic, I think, is very fair. Taito did have a couple of other hits from Japan in the later part of the the Golden Age. Uh, They had Jungle King, which was very, very popular. It was a scrolling game uh, involving vine swinging and obstacle avoidance and all of this stuff. Kind of an action-y, not quite a platformer, but sort of a platformer kind of game. That came out in 1982 and did very good business. I mean, it probably did upwards of 20,000 in the United States. That game did very well. It had some legal problems because it started as a Tarzan game, and Tarzan was not in the public domain. I mean, they didn't call it Tarzan. They called it Jungle King. But, you know, Tarzan's king of the jungle, and we got a guy in a loincloth swinging on vines. It's Tarzan. The Edgar Rice Burroughs estate sued because that's not in the public domain, and I don't know if they won the suit or if Taito just thought it was better not to push it. And so they quickly redesigned the main character to be a pith hat wearing uh, safari type person and renamed it Jungle Hunt. Gameplay is entirely the same. It's just different main character. I think part of what got them too is, if I remember correctly, some of the cabinet art was actually lifted directly from some copyrighted illustrations. I think that was part of what... I may be misremembering that, but I think that may be true. If not, I'm going around spreading rumors now, just like all the bad people. You monster. (laughs) So, you know, that game was highly successful. In 1983, they had Elevator Action, which was a platforming kind of puzzly game, and that was very successful. They were starting to get their groove on again, but then, of course, the whole thing fell apart. Not only did the whole thing fall apart in the United States, uh, you know, and they closed their American, not their whole distributing branch, but their American development, they closed. They closed their factory. Now, to be completely clear here, we're not saying Taito fell apart. We're saying that the U.S. arcade industry yes. and the video game industry crashed yes, in the United of course. States. Yes, of course. So they ended development in North America and they closed the factory. They closed the factory in North America. So that was bad. But then even worse, Michael Kogan is getting worse and worse. And in 1984, 
very early in 1984, beginning of the year, he passes away. Complications due to heart problems, heart disease. They're not ready. They don't have a succession plan in place, like I said. I mean, Kogan was never really interested in that. Abba, his son, does become president of the company. And Nakatani's still there. Nakatani's still running things in Japan. But from what I've gathered, um, you know, Abba, he just, he wasn't ready. The family wasn't ready. The Kogan family wasn't ready to carry on after him. They didn't really have the experience or the skills or, or whatever that they needed to do that. For that kind of two-year period, 1984 to 1986, and we'll, we'll see why 1986 in a second, for a two-year period, they're just kind of listless, kind of... Flapping in the wind. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, in 1984, there's a law passed in Japan limiting the hours that game centers can run. You see, game centers in Japan were 24-7 operations. I mean, they were going literally all hours of the day. And they had a very bad reputation as a result of that. Just like in the United States, arcades were often seen as hangouts for delinquents and near-do-wells and all of that. But that reputation is enhanced when you never close. You know, when you're open at 3 in the morning, well, who, what respectable person is out on the streets at 3 in the morning? I am, obviously. Certainly a lot of the entertainment business in Japan was uh, Yakuza-controlled. I don't know if the coin-op industry was. I know the, the Yakuza tried to move in on the coin-op industry several times. I don't know how successful they were. Some people say that they were very successful. Other people say that they weren't that involved, and I don't have the, the research resources, uh, the, the language know-how and everything to really get into that. But, you know, there were, there were shady elements, and it was closely linked to Pachinko, even though that's a separate industry, which was a gambling industry. And so... You know, they cracked down. They passed a new law that limited the operation of game centers and limited when children could be in game centers. The Japanese market didn't have a crash in 84. It wasn't like the arcade crash in 82 in the United States, but it did hurt that business. It did reduce the impact of that arcade business. And of course, Taito was so big in arcades that I think that they were probably hurt even more than some of their other big competitors because, I mean, they were all in the games and many of them were also in the game centers, but Taito was really invested in the game centers. And so Kogan dying, game centers curtailed, U.S. market temporarily gone. That's a very much a cocktail for ending a company. Yeah, I mean, it's a bad time, but you know, I mean, they're still big. They're, they still remain the number two company. But it's just they kind of lose some of that edge. I mean, they're starting to lose out more and more to, to Sega and Namco, I think, on the innovation side and on the game side. I mean, they remain bigger. They're still bigger than Namco. But it, it just feels like there's a lessening here. The Kogans bring in a consultant in Hawaii named Bill Mosley to kind of help them try and run this company, get their, get their arms around this company. So, you know, you've got him in Hawaii, you have the people in Japan, it's kind of all, all scattered, and it's kind of, uh, you know, kind of a difficult time period. It finally comes to an end in 1986 when the Kogans decide to sell. And when I say the Kogans, uh, we're talking Mike Kogan's wife, his widow, who's still alive, and then he has two children, Abba and Rita, who's his daughter. So, in 1986, they decide to get out. And they sell not everything. In fact, both ABBA and Rita remain big shareholders. And I, maybe when it was finally sold to Squeenix, they sold their shares. But they remain big shareholders for decades following this. 
but they give up majority control in 1986 to the Japanese conglomerate Kyocera. Kyocera started out as a ceramic company, but then they got into electronics because as semiconductors developed, ceramic materials became a very important part of the construction of semiconductors. So in the uh, the late 60s or early 70s, they started doing more and more business with semiconductor companies with the ceramic. And then from there, they decided to themselves become semiconductor manufacturers since they were already part of this process. So they grew and then they became uh, diversified. You know, they were in cell phones. They were in this. They were in that. And they became kind of a diversified electronics company out of that. And in 1986, they decided to add Taito to the uh, Kyocera group. Like I said, it wasn't a wholly owned subsidiary. There were other stockholders, but they had the majority share, so they became the owners of the company. And they remained the owners of the company all the way until 2005. I don't know that they interfered much in the day-to-day of the company. I don't think they were a very visible owner. I'm not positive. Obviously, they they appointed managers and (laughs) did all the things that a parent company does. I don't know that they were necessarily dictating much of the course that the company took in its in its operations, but they became the new owners and the Kogan family remained uh, important stockholders. But in terms of making decisions with the company or running the company, that 1986 was the end of the Kogan family's control of this company that they had originally founded back in 1953 and which had roots that went back even further to like 1944. So what do you do in the mid 80s? When you've got this problem with your core business, you do a couple of different things. You diversify. This is when Taito really starts getting into karaoke machines, kind of big time, somewhere around 1985, even pre-Kyocera sale. So they're getting into karaoke. They end up coming on board with this new Famicom thing. And so they do some third-party publishing on the Famicom. And then the other thing that they do is they really undertake a program of what they call scrap and build in their game center business. This was something that, you know, was kind of going on with with all the big companies. Now that the game centers have been curtailed in their hours of operation and have this very negative reputation, they really need to maximize the amount of business they're doing when they're open and they really have to become more family friendly in order to attract the clientele to keep going. So there's this need to kind of clean things up, not just literally, but also figuratively, just making sure that the facilities are pristine and in top condition and are open and inviting and well-lit and all of this kind of stuff. They do this kind of scrap and build thing where they close less profitable locations or smaller locations, really renovate the locations they're maintaining, and then open new large facilities in places that they think will do well. This is kind of where we get our kind of classic conception of a Japanese game center really starts in this period, not just from Taito, but from all the companies, because uh, the game centers are getting bigger, brighter, and more welcoming, I guess. So that's a big part of what they do in this period. And of course, you've also, you know, from a game perspective, you need to figure out if we're not open 24-7 and we can't get that crowd anymore, How do we get couples in? How do we get families in? One guy, one designer at the company uh, named Fukio Mitsuji knew exactly how you do that. You make a game that is not just a cooperative two-player game, 
because this is something that's existed before. It's not new. But you make that game so that the only way you can actually get the real ending of the game is actually if you beat it with two players. Really? And then how do you make sure that couples are interested in playing this game rather than just a couple of random strangers? You know, how are you going to get women? How are you going to get these new groups into the arcade, into the game center that aren't normally there? Well, you appeal aesthetically. You make the whole thing as cute as you possibly can. And then I suppose if you throw a catchy theme song on top of that, that doesn't hurt either. Quite possibly not. We all know how popular catchy game themes are. And so, of course, the game we're talking about is Bubble Bobble. Yes, we played a lot of that back in the day. Maybe. More in the home for me, I imagine for you as well, than, than in the arcade. But Actually, the arcade. The oh, for you, it's the I, arcade. For me, it's the arcade. The only time I finally got my hands, I've always wanted my own copy, Nintendo copy of Bubble Bobble. Right. And it wasn't until I got that NES Classic <laughs> down there that I got my hands on my own copy of Bubble Bobble. Yeah, yeah. I never owned Bubble Bobble, but I had friends before I knew you. Mm-hmm. There was a time, believe it or not. Uh, that had it so we played it a lot so for me it was was in the home but the point yeah we played that a lot and it's a throwback in a lot of ways it's very much so it's very simplistic Mm -hmm. there's a lot of the monsters have very simple ai but it's still challenging and a lot of that challenge comes not from the ai so much as the level layout Mm mm-hmm And the fact that you can work together to defeat the enemy, but in a way you can sort of trip each other up too. Oh, sure. Very easily because the bubble from either player, either player can jump on top of. Mm -hmm. And then that can lead to some complications, especially when you're trying to perfectly time a shot. The other person gets it before you and you're jumping out of the way. Then you bounce onto that bubble because the bubble's there. And then you jump into the ghost and fall to your death. Somebody's speaking from experience. Nah. (laughs) Right. So it's got this good dynamic uh, between two players, which was important because he wanted it to be a a game that two people played. If if you get through all 100 levels, single player, it actually gives you a screen that basically says, you know, if you want to see the true ending, come back with a friend. (laughs) This game was a direct response to this need to get a new clientele into the Game Center now that Game Centers are operating under these restrictions. And it's, it's a big hit. It's a big hit in Japan. It's a big hit in the U.S. And, you know, it's a good example of trying to get couples involved. Of course, they have another big game in 1986 as well. It's kind of funny. Space Invaders, their first big hit, was, of course, a takeoff on Breakout, kind of taking the abstract gameplay of Breakout and making it more concrete with uh, aliens and spaceships and or space gun batteries and bunkers and whatnot. So then a different designer, not Nishikado, but a different designer at Taito decides, what if we made the ultimate breakout? And what if we combined some of these new elements that shoot-em-ups have introduced into the arcade into our ultimate breakout game? And that, of course, is how you get Arkanoid. Yep, Arkanoid is fun. All the power-ups, all of them. Exactly, because they're taking their cue from just like 
Space Invaders, the kind of first shoot 'em up, was taking its cue from the ball and paddle games. This ball and paddle game takes its cue from all the shoot 'em ups that have followed on Space Invaders and kind of takes some of those features like the power ups and, and brings them into this uh, ball and paddle setting. You know, I mean, we talk about breakout clones and whatnot, but today, when you are playing a breakout style game like on your cell phone, on your smartphone or something, what you're really playing is an Arkanoid clone, not a breakout clone. That's how successful this melding of different shapes and different brick attributes and power-ups for your paddle, all of these things, that's how much of an impact these things had on the breakout-style gameplay is that we really don't have breakout games anymore. We have Arkanoid games. To be truly honest, if you were to play a breakout game today, you'd be bored with it within half an hour or to an hour or so. Right. Because really, it is extremely repetitive, extremely just more of the same. While Arkanoid has a lot of interesting variables that can be brought in where you have blocks that have to be hit multiple times with the ball or it can only be destroyed with certain power-ups. You may or may not have enemies that are shooting down at you or causing chaos to happen or making new blocks appear. All sorts of interesting little twists and quirks and whatever. Very much so, Arkanoid is, by and large, the de facto breakout game. And playing something that is truly just the original breakout, you've got to go hunt down the original breakout. (laughs) Right. So, you know, they have two big legitimate hits in 1986. And in 1987, they have two more big legitimate hits. One of those is Operation Wolf, which we just talked about in our Light Gun episode. So we don't need to talk about it here. And the other one is the absolute biggest game of 1987, and that's Double Dragon. Now, Double Dragon was not created by Taito, but Technos Japan, the company that created the game, was a very small Japanese developer. And so when it came time to bring their game to the United States, they didn't really have the clout they needed to do that. So they licensed to Taito, and Taito releases it in the arcades in the United States. 1987, I I don't think a lot of people realize this, but I have access to the old trade publications now, so I have some numbers that that a lot of people don't generally look at. A lot of people don't realize 1987 was the peak year for arcade video games in the United States post-crash. Obviously, the peak during the Golden Age was bigger. But after the market starts falling apart in 1983... The best year arcade video games ever had in the United States was 1987. That was the year that the second market kind of peaked. And one of the main reasons for that was the popularity of Double Dragon. I mean, Double Dragon was the hottest thing the arcade had seen in the United States. And it is certainly the game that really popularized beat-em-ups that we discussed in our beat-em-up episode. The fact that you have multiplayer, you have multiple characters on the screen that are you're fighting against, mm-hmm. you have the indicators that go, okay, you have defeated everything. Here's the little hand that's going, hey, okay, continue yep. on. Yep, yep. You have a story of you got to go save Marion, your girlfriend. That's right. We don't know whose girlfriend she is, but that's not important. Well, we find out at the end with the shocking twist where after you beat the game with a friend, you fight to the death. What a girl. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, right. Taito didn't create it, but but they released it in the United States. And it was a huge hit in the United States. I mean, absolutely huge. 
So you see, Taito's doing fairly well in this period. Again, you know, they never stop doing well. It's just, you know, they never quite reach the same heights. I think when they really start to hurt is kind of in the early 90s. And I, I don't know why exactly. But they're always a little behind. So they're having hits with games like Arkanoid and Bubble Bobble. But those are really throwbacks. They're improved. I mean, they're improved over games that came before them. As we said, Arkanoid's a much better game than Breakout. But they're still throwbacks. You know, Sega is making waves with their full motion games, their hang-ons, their outruns. Taito isn't really in that. They're doing these sprite-based games. And then when the market starts to move to 3D in the early 90s, they're not there either. I don't know exactly why that is. I I really don't. I mean, I only can speculate at this point. I don't know if having a corporate owner that was not completely engaged with video games was a problem for them. I do know that they kept trying to go public and they kept failing to go public. Every time they tried, they were getting ready to go public. They hit a bad market, a slump in the market, and they decided to hold off. So even companies like Namco and Konami that were smaller than them had gone public and raised capital. But Taito never went public until 1993 is when they finally listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And it was a very successful, very, very successful IPO because they were a big, successful company. I mean, they had really, in a way, waited too long to go public. I mean, they were already a success, so there was kind of pent-up demand. It set some kind of record for trading on, on the first day, in a good way, for a Japanese IPO. But I have to wonder if not getting investment until 1993, you know, because that gives you a lot more capital that you can use. I have to wonder if that's kind of why they missed the boat a little bit on developments in polygonal graphics and kind of cutting edge game design. In the U.S., they're doing okay in the late 80s. Uh, You know, Jack Mattel leaves after a couple of years because of the tensions uh, that we talked about. Uh, Paul Moriarty becomes president outright after that. He he takes the, the top job. He leaves in 1987 just as Taito is kind of looking to get into the console market in the U.S. Uh, they bring in a finance guy named Alan Fetzer, whose background was pretty much all in banking and finance and securities, to lead the company. And, and Fetzer does a good job of building up. Uh, they start in 1988 a new arm called Taito Software, and they are not only making product for the NES, but they also make product for Commodore 64, 6502 processor, just like uh, the NES, so it's relatively easy. I mean, it's different graphic chips, but it's relatively easy to port stuff. So, you know, they do a decent business in the late 80s. Uh, Not spectacular, but, I mean, they're doing like $50 in business, which is good. But they never really get away from arcade games. They never really develop strong home software. And most of their home software are ports of their arcade games. Right. You know, stuff that's specifically geared towards the home. Like, you know, they do have an RPG series, the Lufia series, that they develop in the, in the early 90s. But it doesn't break big in the same way as a Final Fantasy or even as a Sukaden from Konami. I mean, it's kind of there, but Konami does Sukaden and Capcom does Breath of Fire and Taito does Lufia. I think it's fair to say that both Breath of Fire and Sukaden, even though they're not on the same level of success as a Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, did much better than Lufia did. It's kind of like they're trying to push into the home market, but they never 
they never really do as good a job of that as some of these other arcade companies. Not, not to say that Luffy is a bad game. No, certainly Both not. Both of us do enjoy it. I especially love the intro of uh, Luffy at Fortress of Doom, and it's mm-hmm. just really a fascinating intro. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they're, they're, they're well-done games, but it's like they never break through to that same level of success, and they're really behind on 3D, on polygonal graphics. I think we talked before in, in our Sega Namco episodes, Sega and Namco are the companies that really push polygonal graphics in the arcade, and each of them partners with an existing American company defense contractor that's been doing high-tech advanced polygonal simulations already to put new hardware out. Taito doesn't do a partnership. You know, these partnerships are happening in like 91, 92, 93, that time frame. Taito doesn't partner with an American company until 1994. In 1994, they partner with a San Diego company called SDI with their simulations division. And, you know, 1994, it's, it's, it's too late. Like, they're starting now to do the stuff that Sega and Namco have already been doing for a couple of years. So it's too late to have the same kind of impact, I think it's fair to say. They went public in 93, and they made that deal in 94. It's like, did the fact that they go, went public mean that they finally had the money to invest in this? And maybe it was difficult for them to invest before because they didn't have that capital? I mean, I'm just asking questions. I don't know the answer. But it's very possible. I mean, that's an expensive process to get into polygonal graphics. It killed most of the mid-tier Japanese companies. Companies like Data East that were very successful, and Irem, very successful in the Sprite era in the arcades and in the home, just failed to make that transition appropriately. SNK as well. And then they just kind of slowly fell by the wayside because they never did. And Taito didn't get quite that bad, but they were still late to the party, and I think that hurt them. Now, they did have one final massive hit in the arcade, but only in Japan. And that was a little 1997 game called Densha Dago. Are you familiar with that at, at all? I mean, you wouldn't have played no, it. You wouldn't no. have played it, but I, I just don't know if you've heard of it. No, I've never heard of it. It is a train simulator. That's all it is. You are the train man. You are driving the trains advanced bullet train i don't know if it's bullet trains but you know not like locomotive like steam locomotives but modern japanese trains you are the driver choo choo hugely popular in japan absolutely ridiculously hugely popular they even make a home version that comes with a ridiculous controller that tries to replicate as much of the original arcade game as possible because they do a setup that's very similar to a real train setup so you have a lot of different levers and buttons and stuff to fiddle with which i think enhanced the appeal and it was polygonal by this time they're in polygonal games so denshinago is a huge hit in japan i mean the company's still doing well but by this time they're out of the united states you know another problem is that they never figure out in this later period how to make stuff that appeals to the u.s market they leave in 1995 some of their older hits like Operation Wolf and Arkanoid and whatnot do well in the late 80s. But then, uh, you know, during the Sega Genesis era or during the, uh, the PlayStation era, they haven't come up with anything that appeals to that U.S. market. And so they, they withdraw. Tied to America closes in 1995. They're a company that's, that's done a lot of things well, but it just feels like they're kind of coasting towards a soft landing. And, uh, of course, the Japanese arcade market begins declining in the late 90s. They do get into mobile games very aggressively, which is very successful for them. 
because a lot of their, you know, their Arkanoids, their Kixes, those kind of games are are very well suited to the phone market. And we're talking feature phones here. We're not talking smartphones yet. We're talking about late 90s, early 2000s, pre-iPhone. We've talked before how phone gaming kind of took off in Japan much sooner than it did in the U.S. just because it was a population that had less time on their hands in general, uh, tended to have longer commutes by train so that, you know, they're not driving and they can be doing something to pass the time. And because they have a concentrated population, you can get a good cell phone infrastructure network in place much more readily than you could in the United States. So they get into that mobile market and that that does them well. Uh, and they're still a large company, but it's just it's a company that doesn't feel like it has anything exciting going on. And I think that's what made them vulnerable to a takeover by Square Enix. When Square Enix purchased Taito in 2005, Taito was a much bigger company by capitalization and by revenue. It was the bigger company, but it was big in arcades and and game centers and game centers aren't as big a deal anymore. And it has some IP that people remember fondly, but it doesn't have a lot of big IPs, intellectual properties that can be exploited very well. So even though they're a big company, they're a company that's kind of easy for a smaller company to to take over. And uh, Yuichi Wada, who was in charge of Square Enix at the time, he was a big believer that Square needed to diversify in order to survive. It's nice that they had the game center business, which Square Enix didn't have, but it was really the mobile business that he was really interested in. I mean, at that time, it was pretty clear that mobile was going to be the future for a lot of Japanese companies. And if you look today, big publishers like Konami and Square Enix and whatnot uh, in Japan do a lot of their business in in mobile gaming rather than in traditional AAA gaming. So it was really for the the mobile business as much as anything that they wanted Taito. And they bought it. Taito still exists. That brand still exists, but it is a wholly owned subsidiary. You know, they bought everybody out. They didn't just buy Kyocera out. They bought the Kogans out. They bought everybody out. Became a hundred percent wholly owned subsidiary of Square Enix. A few years ago, not right when they bought it, but a few years ago, uh, you know, they kind of killed most of its autonomy. So the president of Square Enix is also the president of Taito. It's their game center arm, their arcade arm. They still do that, and they still exploit uh, historic Taito properties. It still exists, but it's really just a part of Square Enix now. It's it's got no independent agency anymore, and so that's. It's an interesting tale. It's it's not a company that ever failed. I mean, it's a company. It was just more aggressively bought out. Yeah. At the end. It's, so it's sort of like you had that Space Invaders thing. Mm-hmm. It started declining pretty sharply, especially with the death of Mike Kogan. But then they did start to recover, especially during the sprite era of the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. and were able to be somewhat successful and recover. So they managed to gain some power again and some relevance. And then they just started a very slow decline to the point where in the late 90s, early 2000s, they're not innovating like they need to in order to Mm -hmm. get onto polygonal systems. Right. And then Enix goes, you know, I already ate Square and I really need that mobile business Taito has. Mm -hmm. I'm going to eat them too. Exactly. But I'm not taking their name. Right, but their name still exists. I mean, it's it's not like they're called Square Enix Arcade or something. I mean, they're still called Taito. They're still there. But yeah, so it's kind of a weird story because it's a company that just kind of, it was fine. It wasn't doing brilliant. It wasn't doing terrible. It was just, it was fine. 
as this market gets more competitive and games get more expensive and development gets more expensive, there comes a point where it's fine, just isn't quite good enough anymore. And so uh, in 2005, we lost uh, Taito as an independent company. All right. It's kind of interesting with the entire two-parter here of seeing how this entire company came from the dreams of a person trying to escape persecution and is able to create a company, able to leave a very successful life. And then after his death, we just see his company just sort of flounder a bit and eventually get acquired by a different company. But ultimately, considering they didn't have a succession plan and considering how much we've seen with other companies that we've covered, that that is a recipe for seeing the company just go bankrupt and completely annihilated. Oh, sure. The fact that they can sort of live on through Square Enix as the title arm, the name doesn't go away. It's, it's sort of a extension mm-hmm. of Square Enix, but still feels relevant. You still occasionally see the title logo out there on something. Oh, sure. Very interesting history of a very unique company and wraps up the third arm of the three major Japanese arcade manufacturers. Absolutely. Alrighty. What do we delve into on December 1st? Well, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. A type of episode we've never quite done before. We've done episodes on individual games or game franchises before. Mm -hmm. We've done a small number of episodes on individuals before, individual people before. Richard Garriott, Sid Meier, others. Yeah, yeah. Gunpei Yokoi. Gunpei Yokoi. Those may be the only three. But we've done it. (laughs) We've done it. This time, I was thinking, rather than taking a particular game or a particular person, we would look at a confluence, a point where multiple people and multiple games came together to create a unique moment in video game history. And what I am talking about is the launch of the very first six games from Electronic Arts. Now, of course, we've talked about Electronic Arts history before, and we talked a little bit about the launch product, but what I'm talking about is we're going to go through all six of those games one by one, and there are three of them we'll be talking a lot more about than the other three, which uh, anyone who knows anything about this can probably already guess, and the rest of you can wait until next time. We're going to take each of those individual games and the people behind the games and how these people came to be associated with EA and how they came up with their games. Just kind of an in-depth look at the six products that launched Electronic Arts. Alrighty then. The six children of EA. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. 
found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.